Hi, I'm Brian Mandel, the Editor-in-Chief of the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, CCJM. Welcome to Beyond the Pages, CCJM podcast, where we will take you in depth into the content of selected articles from the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine and explore a few interesting tangents along the way. Through moderated interviews with our authors and other experts in the field, we hope the clinicians will gain a more nuanced perspective of clinical concepts that are changing the practice of medicine and be able to apply this perspective to the care of our patients. Thank you for joining us on an episode of Beyond the Pages, Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Andrei Bratano, Senior Associate Program Director of Internal Medicine Residency Program in the Medicine Institute of Cleveland Clinic and Associate Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Joining me in the studio is Dr. Daniel Byrelli. Uh, Dr. Byrelli, welcome. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Albert Abusaif. Dr. Abusaif, welcome. Thanks for having me. So uh, both doctors are uh, in the Department of Neurology, Neurological Institute in Cleveland Clinic, and Mellon Center for Multiple Sclerosis in Cleveland Clinic Foundation. Uh, they are here to talk to us about the article published in Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, Autoimmunity and Postural Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome, or POTS, Implications in Diagnosis and Management. They published this article along with Drs. Yubing Lee, uh, David Paulston, Justin Abatemarco, all of departments of neurology in the Institute of Neurology and Mellon Center for Multiple Sclerosis in Cleveland Clinic Foundation. Um, thank you again for being here, and now let's go beyond the pages. We're going to start with Dr. Byrelli. Uh, so let's start understanding the basics. Could you explain to our listener what POTS is and how it presents? Absolutely. So postular, uh, post, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome is a chronic syndrome defined by a sustained increase in heart rate of at least 30 beats per minute within 10 minutes of standing without accompanying orthostatic hypotension, which as we know is defined as a fall in systolic blood pressure of 20 millimeters of mercury or greater, or a fall in diastolic blood pressure of 10 millimeters of mercury or greater. In addition to this core diagnostic criteria, there must be associated symptoms of orthostatic intolerance that are worse with standing and improve with recumbency. These symptoms can include lightheadedness, fatigue, palpitations, tremulousness, blurred vision, and syncope, for example. Symptoms must persist for at least three months duration, and other conditions that explain sinus tachycardia, including things like prolonged bed rest, medications, pain, fever, and infection should be absent. All of these criteria must be present in order to make a POTS diagnosis. The onset of symptoms is typically subacute in nature and often follows a trigger, such as infection, surgery, trauma, or childbirth. Uh, heat, fever, dehydration, morning hours, strong emotion, and menstruation may exacerbate the symptoms. And the typical age of onset is between 15 and 45, with interestingly, at least 80% of patients being female. So a typical presentation of POTS is in a young active woman with a subacute onset of lightheadedness, dizziness, and presyncope provoked by standing often following a viral illness, surgical procedure, trauma, or prolonged period of inactivity. This patient may report that the symptoms are worse in warm weather or morning hours, or when feeling particularly stressed or anxious, for example. That's very interesting. So what are the mechanisms that might contribute to the development of POTS? 
It's an interesting question, as there's no unifying pathophysiology to explain the development of POTS that we know of to date, although various mechanisms may be involved. Um, and these mechanisms include um, abnormally increased sympathetic nervous system activity and circulating catecholamines, resulting in a hyperadrenergic state, which is termed hyperadrenergic POTS. Uh, then there's peripheral sympathetic denervation, which can lead to venous pooling and volume dysregulation, also known as neuropathic POTS. Low blood volume or absolute hypovolemia may also contribute. And finally, an underlying immune dysregulation may be at play. These varying mechanisms can coexist within an individual patient, resulting in a heterogeneous symptom presentation, which is ultimately defined by the presence of orthostatic intolerance. So you mentioned an underlying immune dysregulation being a possible mechanism. This is extremely intriguing, and we'll come back to this subject. But for now, let's focus on the diagnosis and management. How can POTS be diagnosed, and what approaches should a general practitioner take, considering that many of the symptoms that you mentioned are nonspecific and overlap with presenting symptoms from other conditions? Sure. So POTS can be diagnosed in clinic by the general practitioner without extensive testing, which may be surprising to some. The evaluation starts with a focused history centering on symptom onset and progression, comorbidities, precipitating and exacerbating factors, and positional dependence. Other areas to inquire about include diet, paying particular attention to meal size and frequency, and volume of salt and water intake, as well as exercise tolerance, primarily to assess the severity of a patient's symptoms. The general practitioner should always review the patient's medications, as many commonly prescribed meds like diuretics, vasodilators, antipsychotics, and anticholinergics may cause side effects that mimic POTS symptoms. Finally, a detailed autonomic review of systems is necessary, asking about symptoms like heat intolerance, changes in sweating pattern, dry eyes, dry mouth, lightheadedness with standing, early satiety, constipation, diarrhea, incontinence, or new onset sexual dysfunction. In terms of physical exam, a complete cardiac and neurologic assessment should be performed. And finally, an active stand test can be done right in the office. This test is performed by measuring the patient's heart rate and blood pressure in the supine position, and again at one, three, five, and 10 minutes after standing, looking for that characteristic increase in heart rate and lack of orthostatic hypotension that is seen in POTS. As you mentioned, making the diagnosis is often complicated by teasing out symptoms that are nonspecific and overlap with presenting symptoms from other conditions. I think it's key to generally be familiar with the diagnosis of POTS and consider it in your differential when the clinical picture is typical or fitting. But using history alone, POTS is challenging to differentiate from other causes of orthostatic intolerance. This is where the physical exam is key, looking for signs of possible mimics like thyroid dysfunction, anemia, or a connective tissue disorder. And then the active stand test can be used as a more objective measure that can be done right in the clinic. The last important point to make here is that even though POTS may be hard to differentiate from other causes of orthostatic intolerance, the initial management strategies for these symptoms often remain the same and include interventions such as volume expansion, increased salt intake, wearing compression garments, and implementing a graded exercise program. Any routine labs or special tests we should order to narrow down the differential? I think routine labs to check include a complete blood count, electrolytes, and thyroid function testing. An EKG should be done to assess for an underlying arrhythmia, but echocardiography or long-term rhythm monitoring isn't necessary unless there is a strong suspicion for structural heart, heart disease or symptomatic arrhythmia. Tilt table testing isn't required for diagnosis, 
but can be useful if a patient can't perform an active stand test or other conditions like vasovagal syncope or peripheral autonomic neuropathy are suspected. More in-depth autonomic testing like quantitative pseudomotor, pseudomotor axonal reflex testing, skin biopsy to assess epidermal nerve fiber density, and thermoregulatory sweat testing is not necessary for initial diagnosis. These tests may be pursued by specialists to further evaluate underlying pathophysiology in a patient who hasn't responded to initial conventional therapy and when an autonomic neuropathy is suspected. So if I understood correctly, in most of the cases, extensive testing is not necessary. So Dr. Abu Saif, are there any atypical features that may suggest an alternative diagnosis or red flags that we should be aware uh, of during the diagnostic procedure? Yeah, and that's a great question. Uh, I think if a patient is presenting with the typical features that Dr. Byerly mentioned, uh, generally the uh, diagnostic approach can uh, remain simplified, but there are certain red flag features to be uh, aware of and be concerned about. the onset of symptoms and the severity of symptoms are important. If someone is uh, presenting with a very acute to subacute presentation of dysautonomia over days to weeks and it's severe in nature, that should definitely raise a red flag in 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 a practitioner's mind. Also functional decline. So if someone is declining very quickly, going from their usual activity to not being able to do many of the things that they're used to doing in a very short period of time, that should definitely raise concern. Autonomic features that are widespread involving multiple organ systems uh, are of concern as well. Um, uh, Certain symptoms or signs uh, that you may look for uh, are you know, pupillary dysfunction, for example. So if someone has unequal pupils, one pupil is dilated or um, smaller than the other, uh, any signs of urinary or bowel retention um, or incontinence is also a red flag. New onset sexual dysfunction, uh, any sort of GI dysmotility or early satiety, especially with nausea and vomiting should raise a red flag. If someone has a personal or a family history of malignancy or autoimmune disease, especially if they're presenting at an older age, say 60 or 65 years old or greater, uh, that should increase um, the concern, Um, especially as Dr. Barley said, this tends to occur in in younger individuals, predominantly female. Um, Any suggestion of a CNS dysfunction or abnormal abnormal neurological exam should raise concern. We're looking for things such as ataxia, which might suggest uh, cerebellar dysfunction, Uh, any change in tone or reflexes, uh, suggesting a possible spinal cord dysfunction, or any cognitive difficulties or seizure per se uh, that might suggest some cortical uh, dysfunction. Finally, looking for things like endocrinopathy, so any SIADH, adrenal insufficiency, or panhypopituitarism, should also raise concern for an alternative diagnosis. That's fascinating. Um, Are there any specific autoantibodies we should order in patients with POTS if the red flags are present? Great question. So if the patient has a phenotype that looks somewhat like POTS, but they have certain red flag features as previously mentioned, um, there are certain diseases that you could potentially think about testing for. Um, Certain diseases may sometimes look like POTS, especially early in the disease course or at mild mild severity. Uh, One of the 
diagnoses that we think about a lot is Sjogren's syndrome. So this is a classic example. Um, when you know, so when Sjogren's syndrome affects the neurological uh, or the nervous system, uh, it often classically presents as what we call a sensory ganglionopathy. This is a um, pathology of uh, the sensory ganglion that causes pretty severe sensory ataxia that's often out of proportion to weakness. However, there are milder forms of Sjogren syndrome, which uh, present very similarly to POTS with a lot of orthostatic intolerance. In fact, there was one case series that we looked at by Goodman uh, et al., who studied 13 patients, all with Sjogren syndromes and features of dysautonomia. Eight of these patients actually met uh, clinical criteria for POTS. However, it's important to note that all of these patients also had the CICA symptoms that are classic with Sjogren's syndrome. Um, so uh, generally, if you do suspect uh, that the patient could have a Sjogren's syndrome and they have those classic features, it may be reasonable to order you know, an uh, SSA or SSB antibody. But this is definitely not required for the majority of patients with typical POTS presentation. Um, kind of by a similar token, if a patient presents with more of a severe subacute dysautonomia that's affecting multiple organ systems. They may have pupillary dysfunction, gastroparesis, or urinary retention. Then in those patients, it's probably worthwhile to look for um, a condition called autoimmune uh, Auto, autoimmune autonomic ganglionopathy. And this is a uh, form of autoimmune dysautonomia caused by an underlying antibody, which we term the alpha-3 ganglionic acetylcholine receptor. Again, these presentations are much more severe than what you would typically expect with someone uh, with POTS. Um, some other uh, diseases that you might consider in someone presenting with a POTS-like phenotype. If they have symmetric proximal muscle weakness that improves with exercise, you may consider ruling out something like Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, ordering the PQ type and M-type foldage-gated calcium channel antibody. Um, and uh, if uh, someone is having more of an uh, acute presentation uh, with focal neurological symptoms or uh, focal neurologic deficits on exam, you know, one should never hesitate to reach out to uh, their in-house neurologist for uh, further examination and assistance with the diagnostic workup. But again, it's very important to note that these antibodies should not be tested regularly in patients with typical POTS symptoms and really should only be reserved for the patients with atypical or red flag features. So it sounds like there is still much to learn about specific antibodies in POTS. Uh, could you please discuss what are the clinical similarities between POTS and autoimmune conditions? Yeah, I think the similarities are actually quite fascinating. And I think Dr. Barley and I learned a lot when we started researching this subject a little bit more. Um, but uh, so as we know, 94% of patients diagnosed with POTS uh, are female. And similarly, uh, many autoimmune diseases predominantly affect females. Uh, so there's an interesting um, you know, uh, similarity there. Uh, furthermore, 
the onset of POTS is often preceded by an acute trigger. Uh, sometimes it's a viral infection. It could be a vaccination or physical trauma. Uh, surgery or even pregnancy can provoke uh, symptoms of POTS. And we do often see very similar triggers with um, autoimmune conditions such as uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome or Parsonage-Turner syndrome. Some, some of these which are thought to, to be immune-mediated often have a very similar triggers as well. So that's an interesting uh, uh, consistency there. And, um, you know, a lot of patients with autoimmune disease and a lot of patients with POTS tend to have these generalized chronic symptoms that are hard to pin down, but can be things such as fatigue, headache, GI symptoms, and sleep disruption. And, and so uh, we see that in both patients with autoimmune disease as well as patients with POTS. So, so what percentage of POTS actually have coexisting autoimmune diseases and which of the autoimmune diseases are commonly associated with POTS? I know you mentioned already Sjogren, uh, but are there any other conditions? Yeah, so actually about 16 to 20% of patients with POTS do have some coexisting autoimmune disease. The most common uh, autoimmune diseases include Hashimoto's thyroiditis, celiac disease, Sjogren's syndrome, rheumatoid arthritis, and lupus. And uh, we do find that certain antibodies can often be found in a greater proportion of patients with POTS, including anti-nuclear antibodies or ANA, antiphospholipid antibodies, as well as thyroid-specific antibodies. But it's important to note that these antibodies are often found at lower titers and often with unclear clinical significance. So while it is an interest, interesting link, it doesn't really tell us much clinically about what's going on with these patients. You know, due to the association between POTS and, and autoimmune disease, uh, many researchers have started exploring potential antibody targets in POTS. And uh, many different antibodies have been studied, but no cause of antibody has been identified at this time. So as far as um, antibody testing goes, unless red flag features are present, um, there aren't any specific antibody tests that we should be ordering in patients with typical POTS. So actually, are there any proposed molecular mechanisms linking POTS to autoimmunity? Yeah, so the, the molecular mechanisms, they, they remain poorly understood and they're primarily theoretical, but they are interesting nonetheless. Uh, some have proposed this internal state of sympathetic overactivity or overdrive, which results in an elevation of a cytokine. So the specific cytokine they've looked at is interleukin-6, uh, and that uh, they believe that that might be resulting in increased systemic inflammation. Um, and along with that, the upregulation of IL-6 may kind of result in this vicious cycle where you're getting additional sympathetic nervous system upregulation over time, resulting in a chronic hyperadrenergic state, eventually leading to cardiovascular deconditioning. Um, this cytokine upregulation may also result in vasodilation and vascular permeability. Others have suggested a direct circulating autoantibody that is pathologically affecting the autonomic nervous system. They've looked at several targets, um, but as of this time, none have proven directly causative. So my final question is, uh, is there a role for immunotherapy being explored as a potential treatment for POTS? And what are the current findings from studies involving immunotherapy? Yeah, so this is an interesting topic. Um, when we 
looked when we did our review, we we didn't find any large scale studies um, that have looked at this uh, subject yet. Um, but there have been smaller studies that have been published. Uh, one study looked at six patients with POTS who had a positive GPCR antibody. This is one of the uh, antibody targets that has been looked at in POTS. And um, these patients were considered refractory to first-line treatment, so they were given uh, IVIG over six months. Uh, all of the patients were young and female and, again, had refractory symptoms. The treatment response was measured using tilt table as well as a subject, subjective symptom-based survey. And uh, the results were reported as positive, but uh, the treatment tolerance was poor. Uh, two patients ended up being hospitalized, and there were a lot of treatment complications. Also, it's important to note that a lot of these patients were pre-treated with IV fluids, uh, so volume repletion may have likely contributed to improvement in their symptoms. So it's hard to say, really, if IVIG was helpful. Um, Currently, though, there is a prospective double-blind randomized control trial that is being done uh, over uh, at UT Southwestern by Dr. Stephen Vernino. Uh, they are currently enrolling patients, planning to enroll a total of 32 patients. Uh, they're looking for patients with moderate to severe POTS and an underlying autoantibody, uh, including uh, ANA, ENA, or antiphospholipid syndrome antibody. The end date is expected in late 2023, so hopefully we'll have some preliminary answers soon. Um, and this will shed a little bit more light on whether there is any utility in using immunosuppression to treat a subset of patients with POTS. However, um, for now, I think it's safe to say that there isn't enough evidence to support a benefit of immunotherapy in these patients, at least not yet. All right, Dr. Bayreli, Dr. Abu Saif, thank you so much for your insights and helping us go beyond the pages of the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Thank you for your insights in helping us to go beyond the pages of the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine. To read CCJM articles, visit ccjm.org. To participate in other accredited educational activities, visit ccfcme.org. You can subscribe to the podcast on Google Play, Spotify, or however you prefer to access your podcasts.